everyone. Thank you so much for joining me for another episode of School Nutrition Dietitian. This week, we're speaking with Kyla Tova, the creator of a fascinating audio documentary entitled Your Body, Your Brand. She digs really deep into the motivations behind people leaving their chosen careers and going into wellness coaching. I thought she would be a wonderful choice for the Body Positivity series because she's done so much research around wellness coaching, diet culture, and body image. All right, let's jump right School in. nutrition dietitian here on a mission to show you fruits and vegetables can be super delicious. Eating healthy keeps you healthy on the inside. Keep your stomach satisfied and keep a clear mind. Now you're ready for your academics. Focus, time to handle business. Breakfast, you don't want to miss it. Help your body to replenish clean food clear mind that is the vision tune in to the school nutrition dietitian hello kyla thanks so much for coming on the show absolutely thank you so much for having me So I am, as you know, I'm in school nutrition and I'm very passionate about body positivity and health promotion without falling prey to diet culture and sending out negative messaging to our kids that could potentially be Mm -hmm. damaging while we're trying to help them. So I wanted to have an expert on who has really put a lot of thought and time and research into diet culture and the damage that it really can do. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm happy to, to lend my expertise as far as it goes. <laughs> so you've had a history. Can you tell us a little bit about what led you to change your food philosophy and how you started out in wellness coaching? Yeah, so since we don't want to be here all day, I'll give you the <laughs> abbreviated version. So I had an eating disorder for the majority of my life. Unfortunately, however, because it didn't present the way that a quote unquote typical eating disorder might present anorexia, bulimia, binge eating disorder, I wasn't diagnosed. So I had what's called orthorexia. If you wanted to technically diagnose it as an eating disorder, you would have at the time called it eating disorder, not otherwise specified or as it's known now, other specified feeding and eating disorder, depending on which version of the DSM you're looking at. But essentially, I was obsessed with eating healthy, which, you know, you you would think is like a good thing, right? Right. It sounds um, benign. Right. And in fact, it started out as a necessary thing. So when I was 13 years old, um, I was in my last year's summer camp. And Uh, every morning I was breaking out in hives and we couldn't, my mom and I just, we couldn't figure it out. She was bringing Benadryl to camp, you know, and she was, she suggested, she's like, you know, when you were a kid, you had an allergy test and soy showed up as a potential heightened response. Now, mind you, this was 13 years later. So I don't really know how all of a sudden I would have become allergic to soy. But anyway, um, I cut soy out of my diet. And in doing so, that meant I cut a lot of processed food out of my diet because soy tends to show up as a filler or preservative or a protein additive or, you know, et cetera. Anything that comes in a box basically has soy in it, right? (laughs) So I learned how to read nutrition facts. And that was both a good thing in terms of like, maybe that would have helped my allergy if I were allergic to soy, but also a bad thing because it, that that heightened consciousness, not just of the ingredients, but also of 
the calories and the macros and what I was putting into my body led to an obsession. And because I was doing it, because I thought it was an allergy thing, I had to be really vigilant, right? So I kind of learned that behavior. And the thing is, I went from being like a chubby, out of shape kid that sat on the couch to somebody who was going through puberty and also leaning out because I was no longer eating processed food. And I had started exercising because it was a drama camp and I wanted to be a better dancer. And so all of these things kind of happened at the same time when I was going through a really formative part of my life. And it just sort of encoded in me that my value was directly tied to how I controlled my food and how it made my body look. How did you you make that connection where people reinforcing the weight loss, like giving you positive feedback that was actually damaging? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. I mean, I had family members who'd never said a kind word to me, uh, praising me for my weight loss. I got my first boyfriend. All of a sudden, I went from being the dorky kid that no one cared about to like semi-popular and considered attractive. And at puberty um, in 2001, that was like... (laughs) You know, that was a big thing. Feminism wasn't a huge conversation, at least in my world at the time. I'm from Boca Raton, Florida, which is a very image conscious place is a nice way to put it. I'm not sure Um, that feminism is still a big conversation. I mean, is feminism a big (laughs) conversation in that part of Florida? I don't know. (laughs) Probably not. No. (laughs) But at least with the Internet, you can find it. You know, in 2001, it really wasn't as pervasive as it is now. And so, you know, so there were, there were a number of factors gaining that praise and gaining that sense of self where all of a sudden my thinness meant that I had cultural capital, social capital. I, I felt like whatever I was doing, you know, it had nothing to do with my allergy. It had more to do with something that I needed to continue for the rest of my life. Side note, as it turns out, the hazelnuts in my shampoo were causing. Oh, my goodness. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it, it is so interesting to me because when you say, oh, soy's and everything that comes in a box, I mean, that may be a hyperbole, but it feels literal when I'm trying to accommodate kids with soy allergies. I'm like, oh my goodness, I, I, mm-hmm. you know, I have to really hunt for something that doesn't have it. But nobody ever suspects a non-food item as the source of their allergen. So that is really, really right? interesting. <laughs> Well, and and because the thing is, you know, like, it was just a shampoo, like there can't be anything in there that could possibly hurt me, right? Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) Um, But, (laughs) you know, had I read the label, I would have known that uh, I had a hazelnut allergy, like like a dermatitis, essentially. That's a Um, really good point, too, because I think sometimes we focus obsessively on food, like it's the answer to all that ails us. To mm-hmm. our own detriment, because had the adults around you maybe been more open to the idea that, hey, it could be anything, because often mm-hmm. it could be anything, maybe they would have seen <laughs> that sooner. Exactly. And, you know, nobody paid that close attention since my whatever allergy it was wasn't life threatening. And what they were paying attention to was this sudden thinness that was not clinical, Right. You know, the problem with anorexia is that often it is not caught until it's past the point of easy treatment, right? Until it's past the point of intervention. And often it only gets caught when it happens to thin women, especially thin 
like cis white women because there's there's that that specific like after school special look that doctors say oh that's a problem right absolutely um, absolutely <laughs> you know and there there's so many populations that don't get help um, because they don't present that way well um, if you're and, overweight you know, and that's in air quotes if you mm-hmm. are in a larger larger body and you are engaging in exactly the same behavior as a very mm-hmm. thin classified as underweight person, you're encouraged to continue doing what you're doing. Mm -hmm. No one, or maybe someone does, but it would be atypical for someone to check for obsessive behavior and look at that dieting behavior as though it could be problematic. You're probably just going to be encouraged to keep doing that. And you're right. You have to be severely underweight. You have to be like tube feeding ready for someone to say, Mm -hmm. "Oh, oh, we have a problem here. Exactly. And and the problem, especially with that, you know, having spent years and years around in and around the eating disorder recovery community, is that by the time you reach that point, it's often much, much, much harder to recover. Um, and so recidivism becomes a problem. And so like really severe health problems uh, can occur. So, you know, it's, it's important especially if we're talking about like children, we don't want to be monitoring food to the point where they're afraid to eat, but also just being aware of obsessive patterns of behavior, which could include cutting out food groups um, without really having justification for it, which could include ritual behaviors around food, which could include obsessive exercise, which often doesn't get caught because again, it's seen like something to be praised, but it's actually can be used as a purging behavior. So yeah, it's really hard and it's, it's fraught because the conversation around bodies is also fraught with this value that we place on thinness, this value that we place on clean eating and this value that we place on exercise. So it, it makes it really difficult. And for me, coming up in the age when the internet was becoming something that was not just, it was no longer a novelty, but it was a tool for connecting with other people around your interests. It wasn't just like AOL chat rooms by that point. It was people who started blogging about their health. At least by the time I was in high school, I had live journal. And then by college, I was following wellness blogs almost obsessively. In fact, it was obsessively. (laughs) Let's not downplay it. All of these, these, and I say women because it was it was cisgender, uh, straight, white women who I followed. They they had built these brands, you know, these like cutesy names, you know, like Miss Oatmeal or whatever. I'm making it up, but they all had like, you know, the peanut butter runner or whatever. And they had these really enviable lives that they were portraying on the Internet, which was, you know, these great, like clean recipes. And I say clean in very heavy air quotes and posts about their workouts and their runs and, you know, what Mr. Oatmeal or Mr. Peanut Butter Runner was doing that day and like these really beautiful photos. And in the comments, all of these women who were like obsessively fawning over these the, the bloggers and each other building community, you know and quote unquote, like empowering each other through this conversation around exercise and food. And so I really wanted to be a part of that. And And I relapsed with, with my eating disorder twice. And during my quote unquote recoveries, I didn't stop reading these blogs. And no one identified that as problematic. Or do you remember anyone mentioning it? Okay. (laughs) I thought maybe, you know, sometimes when you're deep in 
with disordered eating, people can, you hear the voice of reason, but you ignore it. When you think back, was there anyone around you who could tell there was an issue or you really had to work through this on your own? I mean, I, I worked through it on my own mm-hmm. during my, my final relapse with, with what was eventually diagnosed as anorexia, even though um, I was actually following a diet that I had read in a magazine, a bodybuilding magazine. So I was just eating that to a T, but that was diagnosed as anorexia. But that at that point, that was when I had started reaching out for help because I was also severely depressed. And it was during my the, the graduate degree that I didn't finish, I ended up leaving to to recover. But because I didn't have health insurance, I couldn't actually afford to go into treatment. So mm-hmm. I had to pay out of pocket for a therapist. And eventually I, I just couldn't afford it. So I stopped going. So I had to work through a lot of this myself. And I think towards the end of it, I think, you know, I had a lot of conversations with my dad about it. But during the actual times in which my obsessive eating and my obsessive exercise were literally killing me, nobody really said anything because they wanted to look like me. Wow, that is so profoundly disturbing. And I remember, well, I have a thyroid condition that sometimes because Mm -hmm. of fatigue, I won't be very active and my weight will fluctuate. But sometimes Mm -hmm. when it's very hyperactive, I can't really be still. And I typically, I don't have much control over my weight. My weight will drop really low. But that's when I'm Mm -hmm. like at my worst, when I'm the sickest. And that's when everybody's like, you look so great. I'm like, I feel like (laughs) I'm dying. So yeah, that's a real problem that it can be valued so much that even when it's a symptom of your illness, people are like, oh, but Mm -hmm. you look great. Exactly. And it's so, it's so sad because, you know, I'm, this can be very triggering. So, you know, I, I hope that people listening to this conversation are being kind to themselves, but you know, like I've had people say, oh, I wish I were an exercise addict. I wish I were anorexic. And they say that jokingly because to them, it doesn't seem like this life-threatening condition. Like I'm standing in front of you and I look just fine. But in reality, those kinds of statements are so damaging and reinforcing and triggering and also dismissive of the pain and suffering that goes on underneath. And, you know, I I think it's... It is. And it's really important, especially if you're talking about children, that they hear this, you know, they hear these conversations, regardless of the age. And eating disorders are starting younger and younger because these conversations are audible and they're visible too. the way that people get treated because of their weight in both directions can be really, really reinforcing of negative behaviors. So looking back as an adult, can you identify statements that were made that you would never make to a child now that were meant to be helpful, maybe in a health promoting setting or in public school? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it's so hard because (laughs) I've repressed a lot of these memories. But I think in general, when you hear statements about calorie counting, when you hear statements about like making healthy choices that are incredibly reductive about what health actually means, when you hear comments about clean, natural, or better for you foods, 
people saying things like, I'm so good because I didn't eat that cookie or I'm so bad because I did, treating any kind of treat as uh, a punishment or a punishable offense or some kind of sin, you know, any kind of religious language that's used around food that's like, this is good and pure and right versus like, this is bad and sinful. Basically, any word that you would use to describe chocolate, don't use that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It does. Now, because it's also (laughs) everywhere in advertising, sometimes it's presented in a neutral way. It's supposed to be fun. When um, Mm -hmm. someone says something sinfully delicious and you should treat yourself and you're going to indulge, how Mm -hmm. do you manage to kind of tear that kind of language out of your vocabulary when it's (laughs) everywhere? Yeah. I mean, for me, it's avoiding a lot of places where you would see advertisements, but obviously you can't shut them all out. Um, It's just a refusal to use it in my own my own life. You know, like if I want ice cream, I'm going to have ice cream and it has nothing to do with indulgence. It has to do with, I like ice cream and I want it now. <laughs> you right. know, And also knowing when I'm not hungry for ice cream that I just don't want it. It's not because I'm being good. And there are very few times in my life when I'm not hungry for ice cream. So, <laughs> well, know? it's funny but, when you give yourself yeah. unconditional permission to eat mm-hmm. It's interesting mm-hmm. that your true preferences come to the surface and they might not be what you thought they were. So I would have yeah. thought, oh, I'm always hungry for ice cream. But in reality, when I know I can have it whenever I want it, I'm almost never hungry for ice cream. The fact that I'm lactose right. intolerant contributes to that. But <laughs> when it was restricted, <laughs> I was obsessed with treats. That's quote unquote treats. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And, you know, when I was in the bodybuilding community, using language like cheat meals, that is one of the worst things you could do because cheating implies that you are doing something wrong. And that means that you're treating your diet like this zero-sum game where the things that you put into your body, God forbid you do this one thing wrong because something bad might happen. It creates this hyper-awareness. Another thing that it kills me that they do this with kids is weigh-ins and measurements mm-hmm. and calorie counting. Any kind of quantification I find to be so, so, so damaging. Like I know Fitbits are cool right now and Apple Watches and all of those like step counters, but all of those things that gamify or reduce the body to some kind of goal, size, weight, amount, etc. It can lead to obsessive thinking. I find this, it's a story that really just like blew my mind. When my younger, my half sister got a uh, Fitbit and my dad got a Fitbit like years and years and years ago. I remember her telling me that she used to walk around the living room in circles to get her step count up so she could beat my dad. <laughs> And, you know, and it's like one of those things where it was like, oh, but you don't have to do that. And it's like, yeah, but I got to win. Well, I have a very sad uh, Fitbit story. So it's basically the same thing. My husband wins at all games, all of them. I haven't, (laughs) well, I think I beat him once bowling, but that's so far in over a decade of marriage, (laughs) he wins everything. So I said, you know, he is not as into exercise as some people. I'm like, we're going to do a Fitbit challenge and I'm going to win this. This is it. He's, Mm -hmm. I'm about to crush him. 
we both injured ourselves. We were so determined. We did it for two months in a row. I could not keep up with him. He's extremely competitive. And it was something ridiculous. Like, I think he got to 3000 in a day. And I have a desk job. So after work, I would go walking for hours trying to beat him. I started wearing it on my ankles. Wow. I would count every single step. And I didn't stop until, what did I have? I had an issue with my patella. Like, I don't even remember now. Basically, my knees blew up. And that was the end of the competition. And he hadn't admitted oh, it, but he had hurt his foot from the excessive exercise. He went to the podiatrist and I had to go um, to the doctor and they were like, what have you been doing? You've got so much inflammation. So anytime you pull the focus Mm -hmm. away from your body on something external that makes you ignore your own body, that's not going to end well. And I still didn't win. No, (laughs) no. Oh, no. So yeah, you know, I have a similar similar thing. Uh, When I worked for Apple, it was in retail. They had a competition over the summer to see who could uh, run the most miles. And so they gave everybody a Nike Plus when that was still a thing. And, you know, I actually ended up destroying my tendon. And to this day, I live with uh, a damaged tendon and chronic pain because I, I stopped listening to my body and just kept going and pushing through the pain because I needed to win. And I think that all of these things, everything from calorie counters, like that new stupid Weight Watchers app or whatever, like all of these things teach us not to listen to our own intuition. And as humans, we evolve to to overeat when we're in the presence of sugar and be uh, distracted by bright lights and shiny things. That's a thing evolutionarily that there's reasons for it. But for the most part, we can know what's best for our bodies. But with the rise of all these tools and charts and instant access on the internet and comparison and Instagram and all of these things, we've lost the ability to even tap into that intuition, to be able to say like, oh, you know, I'm eating all these berries because they're really sweet, but I'm not hungry anymore. Or I'm still hungry and I just want to eat these and it doesn't matter how many calories they are. We can't even make that determination without doing a Google search first. Mm. (laughs) You know what I mean? I would imagine it's very scary for people who've been depending on outside cues for a long time to think about letting their body make the choice. What research can we present to people who feel skeptical? Like you say you can trust your body. What about people who are like, "Ah, I don't believe that? (laughs) Well, I usually say to start with the book Health at Every Size. That's kind of the the starting point. Understanding the health at every size model is really important, but it involves a huge paradigm shift. And that paradigm shift is that your body is not supposed to be controlled. It's not supposed to be tamed and that some fatness is not a problem, right? It's such a hard paradigm shift. And I, I say this with caution because people sometimes hear this and they're like, you're promoting glorifying obesity and you're going to blah, 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 something about Wally. I don't know. Right. Like (laughs) people get up in arms, you know, not all health problems that are quote unquote related to fatness are actually related to fatness. They're related often to lifestyle, which may or may not present itself in the way our bodies present themselves. So understanding that you can be healthy at any size, understanding that health 
has a different definition than thinness, that it has more to do with your ability to to keep on trucking in a way that (laughs) allows you to live your life to the fullest extent and you're not constantly sick or injured. That that It has nothing to do with your size. So yeah, I always say start with health at every size. There's a ton of great research. You know, looking at the intuitive eating model, I personally never really resonated with it, but I know a lot of people do. And for a lot of people, that's a good place to start their recovery. Even people doing things like cognitive behavioral therapy and acceptance and commitment therapy can be really helpful. A lot of this just involves a shift in thinking about health. There's a great book by um, Harriet Brown called Body of Truth that I recommend to everyone. That one contains a lot of the, the research if you want to be able to quote something. But often I don't think that people are convinced by research, to be honest. I think they say, oh, show me the statistics. But I think what people need to, to see is that they're safe if they gain weight. And for a lot of people, they aren't because it's not, it doesn't have anything to do with health, but because in our society, weight stigma and fat phobia are the stress that is caused by being a fat person in society is, is, can be just as damaging as the proposed illnesses that fatness supposedly creates. So that's one of my major concerns when we are Mm -hmm. attempting to help children, we want them to have a leg up in life. And we're hoping Mm -hmm. that our time with them will lead to positive health outcomes. So what Mm -hmm. are some ways that negative, basically body shame, how does body shame affect health? And can you speak to what body shame is and how we spread that around? Essentially, body shame, if we're just talking about weight stigma, it's both internal and external, and it doesn't usually start from an internal place. There are clinical disorders like body dysmorphia, but systemically, if we're just talking about society, there is a huge, huge influence on this idea that our bodies are either too much or not enough because of the conversations that we have around what a valid body supposedly looks like. And weight stigma is self-reinforcing. So you internalize the idea that thinness is better, and then you then perpetuate that by attempting to control your body and control the bodies of others around you. So that's essentially what it is. There has been talk in the various body positive and fat acceptance circles about the idea that the thing that's really hurting fat people's health is the stigma that they face on a day-to-day basis, whether that is being, for example, being unable to get a job because you can't get hired by people who think that you are less competent, right? So having financial struggles and or having people at work bully you or at school, you know, relationships, et cetera. But then there's also fat people often don't get good care because doctors don't treat them with respect and often treat illnesses as if they are an extension of fatness, when in reality, they're often just dismissing illnesses because the person is fat. You know, go on Twitter, there's like a million threads of like women who had their their cancer misdiagnosed or their thyroid problems misdiagnosed because doctors were like, oh, just you just have to lose weight and you'll be better. Right. Well, absolutely. Um, well, even I saw someone, I can't remember where I saw it, but someone was explaining that they went to the hospital because of a migraine 
And Mm -hmm. they didn't really receive any treatment for that. They were talked to about their weight. I don't see what one has to do with the other. And I remember I had just started to gain weight, again, all related to the same thyroid problem. And I Mm -hmm. went to the doctor because I was experiencing hot flashes, like kill me now hot flashes. I don't know what hot flashes related to menopause are like. I hope they're not like that because if so, that's going to be rough. (laughs) But the doctor said, oh, you know, people who are your size tend to um, be more sensitive to heat. So basically, I'm telling you, like, I'm having this symptom that's way out of the ordinary. Mm -hmm. I'm not saying I'm a little hot because I've gotten a little heavy. I'm saying I'm burning Mm -hmm. up. I'm waking up swimming in my own sweat. And you say, oh, "Oh, it's because you're fat, fat people get hot. Do they though? And I even remember saying, (laughs) I've been this fat before and I didn't feel this hot. And he still was like, no, it's the fatness. It's definitely the fatness. So that was annoying. And I kept having to go to the doctor, different doctors, to get my diagnosis. And it sucks to have to keep going to the doctor when you're already sick and you're, like, begging someone to figure out what's wrong with you. And your Mm -hmm. weight is just adding to the confusion because people refuse to accept that it's frequently a symptom not the disorder. Right. Right. It's just, it's, it's concerning because even if let's say the doctors take you seriously, the very fact of being fat in this world is stressful. There are so many structural barriers to existing, (laughs) to being taken seriously, to being comfortable, you know, that stress, that constant assault on just being a person because you somehow are not good enough or good at being whatever the cultural standard is, like all of that can contribute to illness. And often that, you know, it's not like you go to the doctor and they diagnose you with stress. So then that kind of further can take you down that rabbit hole of reinforcing weight stigma when you're in the doctor's office. I don't know. It's just, it's awful. And I'm speaking as a thin person, so I haven't experienced this in my life. However, one of the things that I know affects me in the way in which I exist in this world is that as a thin person, I see fat people being treated poorly or less fairly or with disdain or with some kind of stigma and that actually reinforces my own weight stigma, at least mm. it did in the past, because now I can more fear of fatness. Yeah, exactly. That makes exactly. a lot of sense. Well, then what yeah. did we do? And, you mentioned that intu- <laughs> the intuitive eating model didn't really appeal to you. What alternative mm-hmm. is there for people who do want to pursue health and who don't want to participate in any of these diet culture centered behaviors that are proven to harm people, then what is the option for health promotion? Yeah. So, I mean, (laughs) so here's the question. What is health to you? Right. What is health promotion? I guess would be my question. I think that health is anything that allows you to live your life as maximally as possible. I do think that there are lifestyle changes that you can make at any size with no intention of having a specific outcome for the size or shape of your body. And so what I mean by that is if you're going to go 
to whatever fitness thing that you like doing, whether it's yoga or running, whatever you're doing, if you go into it because it brings you joy, full stop, great. Have, have. If you go into it thinking, well, the point of doing this is losing weight, that's a problem. If you go into it thinking my body's going to look a certain way or I'm going to say yes to the dress or whatever, but catching ourselves when we are participating in the conversation, <laughs> if you will, that's how we start living a more healthful life. Same thing with food. If you are counting calories, restricting your portion size, stopping before you're actually like satiated, maybe that's a thing that you should rethink. Ask yourself, why didn't I finish this meal? Why did I order salad when I went out with my girlfriends instead of ordering the burger like I wanted? Was there a cultural script in my head that made me rethink my options? Those are where we start. And if we're talking about with children, you know, encouraging healthy play is a plus. Uh, I feel like a lot of the structured sports and presidential tests and how many push-ups can you do and how many miles can you run? That's not play. Letting kids actually be active and just like go out and move until they're tired, like that's great. But we don't live in that world anymore because we're quantifying everything all the time. It's the same thing, you know, in the, in the school cafeteria. It's like you serve pizza, but tell kids pizza is bad. You're creating this, this script in their head where they're like, I want this and I can't have it. So now I'm going to have to binge eat it faster or I'm going to have to watch all my friends eat it and suffer because I can't. It's just stuff like that. I, I, I don't know if that's helpful, but that's yeah, kind of how it really I sounds like it. we have to take on the project of working towards understanding our own biases before we can mm-hmm. safely assist children or at a minimum, really look at your mm-hmm. own messaging before you go into an activity with kids and focus on movement's a normal part of life and it's really fun. So let's do something fun and frame that as something you do for the joy of it, not because mm-hmm. your body needs to be a certain way and eat when mm-hmm. you want to Stop when you feel like it, you know, just trying to push (laughs) a normal relationship around food. We want them to have a varied diet because it's good to get lots of different kinds of nutrients in. But you can Mm -hmm. encourage that without saying this food is bad and you have to be careful with it. You have to be afraid of it. Yes. Yes, exactly. Exactly. And encouraging curiosity, I think, is always a good thing. Like, how do you feel when you eat this? You know, like when yes. kids binge on candy, they don't usually feel that great. Oh, okay, why do you think you felt that way? You know what I mean? Well, yeah. how do you feel when you have a couple pieces? Oh, I feel great. Cool. Why don't we do that next time? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just like letting, letting the conversation be natural and about how they feel. That is technically intuitive eating and you don't have to read a book for it. Right. You know, <laughs> that's kind of, that's what I mean when I say I don't really like jive with the, the intuitive eating model. It's just that I don't, I don't want to read any more books about how to do the thing. I don't want to Google anything. I just want to be able to trust my body and know that, you know, like yesterday, <laughs> so I, I'm also unable to eat dairy, but I just, I had had a really long day and like, all I wanted was just like macaroni and cheese. And I knew I had some vegan macaroni and cheese at home. I like came home and I ate the whole damn box because you know what? I was just like, this is how I'm feeling right now. I need some comfort food. 
I want this and this is how I feel. And I felt fine afterward and nothing bad happened. And I didn't go to the gym today and I'm still standing. (laughs) Well, what's so interesting is that people who, um, there's, I'll have to look up the resource, but there's a dietitian mm-hmm. who talks about competent eating and that competent mm-hmm. eaters, they trust their body. They have that sense of self-efficacy and on occasion they'll do something outside of their normal pattern because they feel like mm-hmm. it and it doesn't mm-hmm. change their health outcomes overall. It doesn't change their weight overall. It That's not going to harm you. It's the obsessing that triggers mm-hmm. frequent binges that does start to lead to changes. But I think the fear around fatness or the potential for fatness is so high that people Mm -hmm. are petrified to get out of line. So it's exactly, it's a full blown situation. Like you said before, you're experiencing, you're going through life in a thin body. And so some of these experiences you haven't had firsthand. And I, mm-hmm. I guess I'm a medium fat. I know I hear in the fattest fear, people say they're small fats and medium <laughs> fats. I don't know. I know I'm not yeah. to the point where I've ever been on a plane and been shamed because I couldn't totally stay in my seat. And that's like a whole nother level of stigma and abuse that people are subjected to. So I'm not mm-hmm. pretending to know what it's like to be at that type of weight and have a desire to change my body and then hear, oh, what you really need to do is just relax and trust that everything's right. going to be fine. So it's hard to yeah, know what it's, it's like at that point. I do know, though, that at a minimum, we could work on not contributing to the problem and fat Mm -hmm. shaming as a tool to motivate people to lose weight is absolutely ridiculous. Doesn't work, doesn't help anyone, only hurts people. And Mm -hmm. I hope that everyone will be a little more conscious about the words that they use if that's what they yeah. are attempting to do. Like if people think they're helping people by being abusive, it's not. Helping. No, <laughs> they are not. Yeah. And it's the same thing. I mean, especially when we're having these conversations with children around health and around activity and around, you know, making good quote unquote good choices around food, understanding that while you think you're protecting them from weight stigma, you're just reinforcing the idea of needing to be protected from weight stigma. This is the work of a culture. This is going to require a giant paradigm shift that isn't going to happen overnight. However, if we don't take on this project together, consciously, actively, and model it for other people without shaming them for not knowing that, quote unquote, this is the right way to do it. If we don't take this on today, then nothing changes. You know. <laughs> but and and recognizing that there are so many people who have been hurt by weight stigma and not shaming them for perpetuating it, but rather being curious and allowing them to to want to be curious too. You know, like what it w- would it be like if I didn't have to worry about this? I'm creating as many safe spaces for for people who do suffer from weight stigma as possible, and then that starts with changing your own language. Yeah. Oh, that's a really good point. So uh, I was trying to decide whether or not to mention this in in terms of creating safe spaces. I worked at a place, I guess I won't say where, Mm -hmm. where they imagined they were helping 
people. It was a health oriented mm-hmm. place and they felt like employees needed to walk the walk. So their mm-hmm. solution was to start putting pressure on people to take on lifestyle changes. But what they did at a work meeting, it the work meeting had nothing to do with, it wasn't a health fair. It was literally like a continuing ed type of day. They forced all the employees to weigh in. And the mm-hmm. people that weighed them were all in small bodies. <laughs> Some people made comments during the weigh-ins. It was a disaster, but because everyone was working in healthcare, no one felt comfortable saying, I find this problematic because people are still using weight as a measure of health. People, more than Mm -hmm. anything, seem to just be ashamed that they hadn't met uh, the expectation to be small. But in hindsight, like every time I think about that, it just irritates me. No, just, oh my goodness. I wish I had the words at the time to stand up for everyone there who was, you know, in a larger body to help them create that safe space. They shouldn't have had to be the one who advocated for Mm themselves in that context. That should have, they never should have been subjected to that. Sure, sure. But, you know, I mean, how could you have known at the time? It's just right. a matter of now you have the awareness and you can take that into the, the next interactions and the next workplaces and, you know what I mean? And and modeling it for others. Right. And the best you, we can do. Modeling it without being preachy. I love that. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Can we hear that again? For sure. Modeling it without being preachy. That's a great <laughs> point because people don't respond yeah. to that. So you mentioned no. that things you take on projects now because this is a massive change and it won't happen overnight. Can you talk a little bit about your finding our hunger project and your current documentary project since those are things yeah. you've been doing to help change the culture? Yeah. So finding our hunger was an eating disorder recovery podcast that I started I think in like 2013 and it ran until about 2016 I've left it online. I've been paying for the podcast hosting just in case there were people who needed to hear it. I'll be honest, it doesn't start getting good until about episode 95 because up until episode 95, I was still very orthorexic in my mindset. But around episode 95, I started eating bread again and I started eating without worrying about whether or not it was paleo or whatever. And I started interviewing people who I didn't necessarily fully agree with. And I was ready to learn. And once I got to that point, I feel like that's when the podcast started to get good. And that's when my own mindset started to change. So it really became a project of intersectional feminism, fat acceptance, body positivity. And it it really led to a huge shift that allowed me to do the work that I'm doing now. It was a really important project. I started a podcast. It's called Your Body, Your Brand. It's actually a 15 episode documentary. It started out as like an eight episode, like I'm just going to interview my friends, two and a half years, 40 interviews, and many hundreds of hours of hours of editing, recording and producing later. It's now a 15 episode documentary. And it kind of takes us on a journey from understanding how diet culture gets perpetuated through the media and through podcasts and blogs and things like that all the way through like an understanding of what neoliberal feminism is and why it matters that we know this. Mm. I I took the stories of women who have gone through this, this shift from some kind of corporate job or some kind of helping job. So like 
you know, teachers and, and social workers and therapists, things like that, to becoming online coaches, as well as like women who dropped out of tech because of glass ceilings and long hours and, <laughs> you know, motherhood and things like that. So anyway, right. um, it, it, combines all of these different voices with the voices of experts in sales, marketing, branding, feminism, media studies, et cetera, to try to understand what is going on at this cultural moment. So that yeah, really I'm, I'm really excited about it. <laughs> and so you're also yeah. um, doing graduate study around what? How does it relate to what you're doing with that project? Yeah. So I just started a combined master's PhD program at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. I'm in the communication arts department, which is considered a social science, and so not humanities, but more research-based. And I am going to be in the rhetoric, politics, and culture track. I chose uh, rhetoric specifically because I do think that the body is political, and I do think that we read certain things onto it, and we use our bodies to communicate. So I'm going to be studying, I have like two or three years left to figure out what my dissertation is going to be. But in general, I think it's going to go along the same lines as this podcast that I just released and really try to understand how we subsume marketing rhetoric as identity um, and what that means politically for the feminist movement. So hmm. it's specific, but also really, really timely. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's fascinating. That's so interesting. I definitely want to talk to you again once you, I mean, I'm sure you've <laughs> already done so much research to get the documentary project completed. Mm -hmm. I cannot yeah. even imagine how much more you will have taken in by the time you finish your PhD. Oh. It's going to be crazy. Yes, <laughs> it is, but it's worth it. It's going to be worth every second, you know, especially if it means that I can better articulate these systemic things that are influencing people and also figure out a plan of action so that we can kind of move past it. Right. You know, that to me seems like an important part of it is making this actionable. So it's not just something that's in an academic journal that nobody can read. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. That's why it's so exciting to know that you're going to be taking this on and you're already actively producing content and you have that skill set so that we can look forward to you disseminating, you know, dropping knowledge on us in a easily digestible <laughs> form, <laughs> which is, that the, is the plan. We like it these days. Thank you so much for yes. coming on. Is there anything else you want to leave listeners with that you just wish they would keep in mind when trying to deal with the children in our, in our own lives and that we um, work with in the professional setting? Yeah. Be gentle with yourself. We're all going to make mistakes. That's the thing. And if kids see you beating yourself up over mistakes, they learn to do the same thing. Be gentle with yourself and be gentle with them. Because, yeah, we're all on this journey together, yeah. <laughs> you know? <laughs> Thank you. That's perfect. Yeah. That's a great place to end. Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay, everybody, I hope you got as much out of that conversation as I did. I know some of these concepts may be new, but the great thing is there's a ton of resources available online. Kyla's available, I'm available. So reach out to me on social media. And remember, as usual, the only cost for the show is that you share it with others. If you get anything of use out of an episode, like I hope you do every week, be sure to share it with a friend or anyone who you think would benefit from hearing the message. All right, everybody, I'll see you next week.